Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Monica, it is a pleasure to have you back on the show. And we're not talking about JFK today, but we're talking about another interest of yours. I didn't know you were interested in Michael Jackson. Yeah, I've been a big fan since I was a little kid. Um, the first song of his I actually ever heard was Man in the Mirror um, when I was little. And I was just so moved by that song. Like every time I remember I listening, sitting in the grass with my little white radio, like listening to that song in the late 80s. And I was just it made me very much like want to be a good person, you know, want to be like a empathetic person, a, a sympathetic person, a giving person. So I was so inspired by that song. And he actually instigated my interest in JFK as well, because he said that song was JFK's philosophy because Jackie actually edited his. He wrote an autobiography in the mid 1980s and Jackie edited it and Jackie wrote the intro to it. And in that book, he wrote that, you know, the meaning of that song is what JFK stood for, which is, you know, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That's what the Peace Corps was all, you know, the Peace Corps was all about is just, you know, if you want to make the world a better place, you have to do it yourself. You can't expect other people to do it. So he kind of piqued my interest in JFK when I was a little kid as well. And then, of course, later on, like in the early 90s, he did like Heal the World, Black or White. And then actually in the mid 90s, you know, his songs really started to become really bold where he did songs like They Don't Care About Us. And um, he actually wrote a song about the JFK assassination, both physical and character assassination in one song. So he knew that the two were one and the same. And so he's the one who seeped into my subconscious as growing up that JFK was character assassinated because I must have listened to that song like a million times when I was young. So I think that's that stayed with me in the back of my mind so that when I grew up, I ended up writing a book about JFK and essentially his character assassination. Um, so a lot of that came back to Michael, I think. Um, so he had a huge influence on me growing up. I think he definitely influenced, you know, the person I became and my views of the world. And he also I learned a lot about not trusting the media from him and like understanding how propaganda works and understanding <laughs> you know, had the media is really a tool of empire and, you know, they kind of, you know, push their agendas or whatnot. And you can't just blindly trust everything the media says and does. And a lot of that I learned from him, not just from him, but what he was going through, because I could see the way they were reporting on him versus the reality of the situation. So and that's what I tried to do with my new book, which is called um, Michael Jackson, the man, the music, the controversy is to kind of show the difference between what his story actually was and how it was reported in the press and just how drastically different those two things are to give people an idea of how manipulative the press are, how they can misportray an event in a person. Um, you know, cause he, I think he is very different from how he was portrayed. I think he's probably one of the most misunderstood human beings in history, one of the most misunderstood public figures in history. So I hope people get out of my book, not just who he was and what, and how incredible his music was because people know his music from the early 80s like they know Billie Jean and Thriller and Beat It and I love listening to those songs but I don't really care for them necessarily because they're your typical superficial pop songs it's his music later like the stuff like they don't care about us the stuff about the JFK assassination he wrote this brilliant anti-war anthem we've had enough where he basically you know he's saying what did these soldiers come here for? If they're for peace, why is there war? You know, did God say they could decide who will live and who will die? You know, that's the kind of music he was writing later in his life. But everybody was too busy following the propaganda and the media to even realize what he was doing or have any awareness of what he was doing in his music. So 
I kind of wanted to introduce people to the music that he was writing later in his life and how um, I would say almost anti-empire it was and how meaningful it was, I think, and how much depth it had. And also to show people that what you see on TV can be drastically different than the reality and can be greatly misportrayed. Um, and plot, I also go in depth. Oh, go ahead. I'll say, can you plot a point where he decided to start writing songs about the war or writing songs about change and kind of hitting more of a societal problem? Um, he had a little bit of that with his brothers. Um, so there was a little bit of that early on, not much because they did so many songs and they weren't as famous as he was. You know, and then when he was solo, his first solo album was off the wall as an adult. And that, that was a pretty superficial album. So was Thriller. You know, that was a pretty superficial album. On back, soon after Thriller, in 1985, he wrote We Are the World. So I don't think many people realize that he wrote that song. There's actually a new documentary on Netflix about it, about how that song came to be and how they recorded it. So that and that song raised like all this money for the famine in Ethiopia. And it was basically about, you know, we are one world that we want to give and, you know, help people and whatnot. So that was his first, I guess, as an adult, like solo major song that kind of fit that theme. And then when you got into the Bad Album, there was a little bit more of that. There was Man in the Mirror, which is the song, the first song of his that I'd ever heard as a child, which had a massive impact on my life. Um, and he had like another part of me, which was basically like, we're all interconnected, you know, each person is a part of the other person, but it really started on his dangerous album, which is 1991 with like black or white and jam and heal the world. And if you watch the video for heal, the other interesting thing is like, if you watch the man in the mirror video, he doesn't appear in it until the very end. And he actually has images of JFK and RFK in that video. Also in the concert performance he gives in his Moonwalk Moonwalker video, you can see images of JFK and RFK. So that, that impacted me as a child. Then in Heal the World, you see like all these war-torn regions like in Asia and Africa and Israel, Palestine. And you see then, you know, these all these soldiers with guns. And then you see like the little kids interacting without prejudice, right? So they're like, I'm a kid, you're a kid, let's just play and have fun, right? They're not, they don't have that kind of prejudice built into them. And so once the soldiers see the kids playing like that, you know, they throw away their guns or their weapons. And I know it's very kind of utopian and um, maybe unrealistic, but that impacts you as a child when you see that, right? You, th you think like that's how the world should be. And then he did stuff like even that people aren't aware of, like in his black or white video, people don't understand that the Panther dance sequence at the end, that that's um, in reference to the Black Panther Party, which was a huge like anti-imperialist, you know, movement and party in the late started in the late 1960s. That's what that Black Panther dance is referencing. Um, do, do you think that his career boosted upwards or went down because of having such political views and kind of boiling it past maybe what these songs originally were? I think down. I think because okay. um, that happened to Elvis Presley. Every artist has like this weird moment where they switch into going into activism or start becoming. I don't know what happened, but it's I mean, for me, I like some of the stuff like Elvis when he went to become an activist. But a lot of people did not receive it well. They're like, go back to the thing we originally wanted you for, which was writing music about love and rock and roll and this type of. Stuff. And I was like, I would think like people would be more aware, if anything, if they actually cared about the artist. Um, it's hard to say because that's when all the molestation crap started. So people were, you know, they were pushing people away from his music anyway, because they were really trying to destroy his image. So 
it's hard to say whether the change in his music made people listen to it less or if all the molestation crap made people listen to it less, if that makes sense. Because it kind of happened around the same time. So it's hard to say, um, you know, which had more impact. But definitely his later music, people listen to a lot less. Than, and even now, you know, when people play his music, they're typically playing the stuff from the 80s. They're not typically playing the stuff from the 90s or later. Um, so a lot of people just have an unawareness of a lot of his music. When did the molestation stuff start? And how, 19... like, oh, go ahead. I was about to say, and how much of this boils down to, uh, I would say, tabloid journalism? Because I would feel like when he was a star, there's a lot of those tabloid magazines that were coming out, really chopping bits up and making things try and fit a certain story. Yeah. So it started in 1993. And there's um, the allegations were made by a guy named Evan Chandler. So, and his son was Jordan Chandler and he had a wife, um, June Chandler, and a, she had another daughter, Lily Chandler. And Michael became, Michael's car ran out of gas. And the June was married to another guy, David Schwartz at this time. And his like run a wreck car business was right down the street. So he went in there and they, then David called June and Jordy to come down because Jordy was a big fan of Michael. And so that's kind of how they befriended Michael. And so Evan, who was kind of an absent father or absent ex-husband, ab absent, you know, father, he had a new family now with two children. He didn't really pay much attention to, to Jordan. And then what happened is once he saw that Jordan and his ex-wife were friends with MJ, he start at first, you know, he became friendly with MJ as well. He invited him to his house and all that. Um, but then as he, MJ wasn't really returning his phone calls, he wasn't really into talking to Evan. He was friends with, you know, June and Jordan and Lily. Evan started to get jealous and really erratic. And so David Schwartz uh, taped a phone conversation he had with Evan. It's a long conversation. It's like two hours long. And the whole transcript's available online. Bits of the audio are available online. And he's basically ranting and raving that he wants to destroy Michael. And, you know, he's like, I'm, you know, I'm going to put this out in the press. And, you know, he, you know, he's not going to sell another song. And then he says, everything is going according to a certain plan that isn't just mine. There are other people involved, people in certain positions. And so you can see that this is like, I don't know, he didn't say who else was involved or what the plan was, but it's clear, it's clear that he didn't come up with this on his own and he's not doing this on his own. So basically he got uh, June to give Jordy to her for a week um, and he got custody for him for that week, but he never gave her, gave Jordy back to June. Um, and so after they, well, let me go back a little bit. After they taped the phone conversation, David and June gave that tape to Michael's private investigator. And he knew right away that, you know, this was about extortion um, because Evan wanted like $20 million from some $40 million film deal that MJ got from Sony um, because Evan was a screenwriter. He wrote Robin Hood Men in Tights. It was only a screenplay he wrote. But he wanted, because he knew Michael, he wanted some of that Sony money to write screenplays. Um, and Michael just didn't give it to him. So they figured it was an extortion attempt over that. Um, Pelicano, Michael's private investigator, asked Jordy, you know, did MJ ever molest you? And um, Jordy said, no, my dad just wants money. But then Jordy, uh, Evan got uh, custody of Jordy for a week, but then he wouldn't give him back to June. And he refused to give him back to June. And then... June went to court and said, I want my son back. And then the next day, 
uh, Evan took Jordan to a psychologist and that's when Jordan told the psychologist that he was molested, but it was only touching no penetration because you can verify penetration with a medical exam. Um, and Evan had actually gone to the psychologist a month prior with a hypothetical scenario. So he was already planning this in advance because the psychologist told him, if you have Jordy report it to me, then I'm legally obligated to report it to the police. And that's what happened. Then the psychologist reported it to the police. Um, and then what happened is then Michael filed extortion charges against them. And uh, because of the extortion charges, uh, his attorney had to step away and he got another attorney, Larry Feldman, and they filed a civil lawsuit against Michael. So what people need to understand that there were they created a situation where there are two pending cases against Michael, a criminal case and a civil case at the same time for the same matter. But one had absolutely nothing to do with each with the other. Right. A criminal case. If you're convicted, you can go to jail. And that has a much higher burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. A civil case, it's only compensation on the line. And the burden of proof is only a preponderance of evidence, which basically means that you think it was more likely true than not true. And that's to get compensation. So Michael's lawyers went to the court and said, you can't do this. This is totally messed up. Like our client has the right to give his defense for the first time in a criminal courtroom. You can't push the civil case ahead of the criminal case because then he's going to be given a civil deposition. They can take under oath all these places he's been, all these things he's done, and then they can craft their criminal case around it, which is what they did in 2003 when they found out he had an ironclad alibi. They simply changed the dates on the charge sheet to work around his alibi. So they were like, you can't you can't force him to do a civil deposition if he's got the same matter pending in a criminal investigation. That's not right. You have to let the criminal investigation complete. They went to the court four times trying to delay the civil case. But what was happening is Feldman, which is Chandler's attorney, pushed a trial preference saying we want a civil trial within 120 days because Jordy's memory might go away. So the judge granted their preference that we're going to do a civil trial with one within 120 days even though it takes away Michael's right to offer his defense for the first time in a criminal courtroom. So all this back and forth is happening. And then, you know, they interviewed all these like 200, 200 people that knew MJ. They raided his properties, both a condo he had in Los Angeles and Neverland. They weren't able to find anything. So because the police weren't able to find anything, they ordered a body search of MJ. Now, a lot of the media will report, oh, the the body description matched. Oh, that's nonsense. Number one, he wasn't arrested after the fact. So, you know, it wasn't a match. And number two, Jordy said Michael was circumcised. We know from his autopsy, he was not circumcised. They asked his mother at a grand jury later, whether he had surgery on his genitalia, which would make no sense to ask that question if the description matched. And the other thing is then Feldman filed a motion at the civil trial saying, we want to give Michael three options. Either you give the photos to us, either you do another body search, or you bar the photos from the from the civil trial. So why would Feldman want to bar the photos from the civil trial if it matched? You know, the only reason he'd want to bar them is if there wasn't a match. So all this legal stuff was going back and forth while the press was just going crazy, right? Because the press is all like, yeah, it's true. He's a molester or whatever. You know how the press is. Well, it explains why a lot of people might not know the official story or the real story, and they just might have caught maybe one day of the news. And then they're like, oh, that's what happens. Mike Michael Jackson's this, and then just kind of never look back into it again. Yeah. And so what happened is, so he was originally supposed to be deposed on January 14th. That got delayed to January 25th. Now we're into 1994. 
And then on the day of his deposition, the his attorney settled the case um, and they settled it because they they just didn't want him to give a civil deposition when there was an ongoing criminal investigation. And they they tried over and over to get the deposition delayed. They couldn't. So they finally settled it on the day of the deposition. And there was a large amount paid to the accuser. It was 20 million. But it's not clear if Michael paid that because um, his insurance co company actually offered to make the payment. Um, and. I know the secretary for uh, Roth, uh, Rothman also said that the insurance company made the payment. And there was, they did say someone, a representative from Transamerica did say they offered to settle the case for Michael. Um, and he actually wrote in a song later, Insurance, Where Do Your Loyalties Lie? Um, because it was, wasn't clear like how whether he really wanted to settle or not, or he was being pressured by his lawyers and everyone else saying, you know, you have to do this, you have a pending criminal case. You can't get involved in the civil matter. You know, we have to deal with the criminal matter. So that was settled. And then later that spring, they convened two grand juries, one in Santa Barbara and one in Los Angeles, because the criminal case continued, right? They convened two grand juries. And you know how they say grand jury will indict a ham sandwich. Both grand juries refused to indict Michael Jackson because there was no evidence to support the claims. The description didn't match, et cetera. So both grand juries basically refused to indict him. And then that case was also later in that 2005 trial, they brought in prior bad acts. So they brought in this 1993 case. And of course he got acquitted on that. So you're looking at a guy who got basically acquitted three times for that 1993 case by two grand juries in the nineties and by um, you know a court case in 2005. They all, all three of those covered the 1993 allegations you know, all three, well, the first two refused to even indict, and then the last one acquitted. So this idea that he paid his way out of going to prison is just laughable and clearly not true because it's his attorneys that beg the judge for the criminal case to go first, obviously, because they want him to have a fair shot at defending himself. Um, and it was the Chandler who, you know, basically pushed and pushed and pushed for the civil case to go first. And then the settlement was merely to, you know, protect his right to testify for the first time and or give his defense for the first time in a criminal case. So that's kind of what happened. That's the timeline of what, what happened. And if you if you look, read the transcript of that phone conversation back from July, that was uh, I think it was late June, early July that was taped. I mean, you can see Evan is like totally plotting this thing out. And when you consider the fact that he wanted like half that Sony money, which is what he sued for, um, it's just I go into all these details in the book, but um, is it like yeah, a, is it's it like a fascinating a, is it story. like a Lee Harvey Oswald scenario where it was like he was sunken by the media? The media kind of made him and kind of sunk him in the eyes of the American public. And I'm guessing with Michael Jackson, the media really kind of just sunk all their claws and their fangs into it. The whole case and really kind of uh, I mean, what did the media do exactly? I mean, they basically ran with the allegations as if they were true. Right. You know how the media is. It's yeah. just like very salacious, very innuendo. And you get people reporting stuff to the tabloids. Oh, I saw this and I saw that. And, you know, which is not, you know, none of these were seen as credible by the police or any jury or anything like that, you know, but you're always going to, especially when you have a celebrity like Michael Jackson, you're always going to get somebody who's going to run to the tabloids with one salacious story or another um, unsubstantiated story or whatnot. So yeah, the media went wild. Cause I remember I was young at the time and I was, you know, I was a big MJ fan. I loved his music and, you know, I loved heal the world man in the mirror. And so I was like, what is going on? Like, it just didn't make any sense to me. Like I never, 
you know, at that point, I never imagined like it could be true because it was just so different from the person that I knew or not personally knew, but the, you know, what I'd known about him from his music and from his interviews and stuff. Um, but I didn't know the details because they weren't really in the press. It wasn't until I got older and I studied the details of those allegations and the court papers and things like that, that I really knew what nonsense it was. But at the time I didn't know, you know, I was just going based off my intuition, right? But I didn't really have the knowledge because the media wasn't really reporting it properly. Well, let's explain some of the anomalies or what I would call motives that really don't have the means to it. Neverland is a good example. Um, everyone points to that. Like he had a he had a ranch. He had this, all this stuff that you bring little kids over. But I was like, yeah, but you got to kind of look at it at full context. I mean, the guy never really had a childhood himself. Um, he was really trying to be friendly. If you look at Mr. Rogers, we don't consider that guy evil at all in any sense of the word. And, you know, so, I mean, and parents could stay at Neverland with the kids, I'm pretty sure. So it's not like they weren't not there. There's been parents that have openly spoken about, I've never left my kid's side. It was a lot of fun. He was a great host. So when we talk, we talk about the media, we talk about people, when they start pointing at things of like, this is how this is true. And this is how this is true. They point to Michael Jackson's childhood, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And then they point to Neverland Ranch as being prime examples and motivations for the reasons why these allegations are true. Okay. So Neverland, there's massive, massive misperception about Neverland. The first one is did that- Did it have lived... a Ferris wheel? That's the real question. Yes, okay, it did. That's awesome. <laughs> it did it had an amusement park so i'm pretty sure there was a ferris wheel there um so the first misperception is he didn't actually live there right he later in his life he lived there but in, the, in his early years he spent most of his time in a condo in los angeles near recording studios and also just traveling the globe touring and all that so he would maybe spend a couple weeks a year at neverland and that's it you know an occasional weekend here or an occasional week there um so it's very limited Neverland was essentially a full-time charity operation, which virtually nobody knows. So there's like a hundred staff that work at Neverland and every week in the, not the three winter months, they had less visits in the three winter months because there's a lot of rain, but the other nine months of the year, one to three times a week, they'd invite like groups of hundreds of kids to enjoy Neverland. So that's the amusement park, the zoo, the mountains, you know, because it's Neverland is like 3000 acres of wilderness. Mainly there is an amusement park, but it's mainly wilderness. It's, it's right next to a national forest. Um, so it's really, really scenic and peaceful and idyllic. So and it's not just children. They would invite like uh, elderly groups there to enjoy the day and stuff. But basically, um, yeah, one to three times a week, you'd have these groups of kids when their parents and siblings and everyone was invited. And these would be like inner city kids, or they would be like, a lot of the times it was terminally ill kids. Um, I know I was watching an interview with the one of the, the ranch managers there and like his favorite um, memory was when they had all these burned kids come because they look like aliens, right? They're so badly burned. They look like aliens. And he was like, that day meant so much to those kids because they were able to run around and nobody was staring at them. Nobody was like pointing fingers at them. You know, they really got to an experience just like a day of fun. And Michael was never really at these events, right? Because he wasn't there. He was only there one or two weeks a year. Um, so Neverland was more or less a charity operation. Yes, it had a house there. Yes, he stayed there. Yes, he had friends and family visit Neverland. But that's what it was built for. And that's what it was mainly used for, which I think very, very few people understand. And Michael talked about it once. And he said, you know, I had no childhood. So I know what it's like to not have a childhood. And these kids who are like a lot of these kids who are terminally ill and the rides there, 
you know, we're all like wheelchair accessible and, you know, the, the people that work there got special training to be able to like extricate physically challenged children and all that. So he's like, I know what it's like to not have a childhood. I know what it's like to deal with adult pressures and adult stress at a young age. And that's how, you know, what these children feel like. Cause if you think about it, if you have like a bad cancer when you're eight years old, nine years old, you know, that's not something you want to be dealing with as an eight or nine-year-old. You want to be out playing with your friends. You don't want to be living in this adult world with adult stress. And so he's like, I really empathize with that. Um, and that's why he built Neverland. Um, and it was also his creativity, right? He's a super creative person. So he wanted to build this place that was just like a really peaceful, serene, idyllic place that anybody could go to and just you know, feel at peace. And that's what like the elderly people that visited Neverland said. It was just so peaceful and just so, you know, it made them feel really at home being there. Um, so that's what Neverland was. Now, obviously he enjoyed it himself as well. And he would invite people like Macaulay Culkin and his family there for the weekend or whatever. And they would hang out at Neverland and, you know, and obviously if they were friends, they would end up staying overnight, you know, and there were, there, the house had like six bedrooms and there were, uh, three guest cottages on the property as well. So yes, people did stay overnight when they would go there for a weekend or something, or he would be there. A lot of times they would stay there and he wasn't even there, Michael, um, but they would stay there when he was there sometimes too. So I think it's silly to call it a trap for children. I think that people who say that don't know anything about Neverland, don't know how little time he actually spent there, <clears throat> don't know who that place was built for, what it was used for. <clears throat> Sorry. And um yeah, so, you know, I, I get why the media says that. It's an easy thing to say. But when you actually look into it, it's a very different different from how it's portrayed in the media. How many interviews did you watch or how many, uh, like, to get your resources to put into your book, besides just some of your own common knowledge and um, perspective on Michael Jackson? But I'm, I'm curious to how many people actually talked about how good it was compared to the people that might have had dissent about it. Because I couldn't really find a whole bunch of interviews with anybody saying any allegations against Michael Jackson, everything that popped up was positive stuff. Yeah, I probably listened to over 100 interviews of people who knew him, all very positive. Um, there's a lot of, uh, like MJ Cast is a really good MJ podcast. They interview a lot of people that worked with him or that worked at the ranch. Um, yeah, everybody who knew him, everybody who worked with him, everybody who worked for him, all give very, very positive feedback on who he was as a person and very consistent. You know, they all say he was highly intelligent, highly empathetic. Um, really kind, really sweet, you know, really shy. Like, so everybody gives the exact same feedback. And this is, and it's very consistent. You know, people who worked with him in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, you know, his bodyguards. I mean, literally everyone gives the same feedback. You know, so you've got like a hundred people that are telling the same story, you know, that were very close to him, that knew him for many years. Can I ask about, what do you think about the whole adult male playing with kids. Do you think that was a main motivator as well, too, for people thinking that's just strange in our society, even though it's there's nothing really wrong with that? I'd have to think that has to play a factor. Parents just don't see, and especially around this time, you couldn't leave kids with doctors. You know, everyone was afraid of that because there were these nurses that were like apparently killing kids. I've I've interviewed a couple authors who have interviewed those nurses before, but it's a strange time. The 80s and 90s was a very like, 
kidnapping on every corner. You can't let your kids walk by themselves. So I would think it was be strange. And it was kind of just hit that time period that somehow this got stigmatized onto him as well. too. he's an adult male hanging out with little kids, but he's doing a great thing. I mean, that with all those burned kids that went there to that, that makes me start to cry a little bit. I mean, yeah, you really got to think about kids that don't have a childhood that are now given a chance to express themselves. Yeah. So I do think that played a part of it. Um, which was always strange to me because I love kids. I love playing with kids. I love playing with like my nephews, my niece. Like it's, you know, I don't see anything wrong with adults enjoying, you know, spending time with children. Um, but for him, I think it was a little bit different because when he was little, really the only kids he played with was his brothers who are older than him, right? Um, they were like teenagers. He was a kid. So um, so he didn't really have other kids to play with. And he had a sort of sort of like stunted, I think, arrested development in some regards. Um, you know, one of his uh, I think this I don't remember who it was, someone who had worked with him said, you know, when he was 18, he would like take her purse and dump out all the contents and look what's inside. And she's like, he was a genius, but I'd expect a four year old to do that. So she was just conveying how he wasn't really developed in that area. And when you look at like when he was hanging out with Macaulay Culkin and Brett Barnes and those guys who stayed friends with him till the end of his life. I mean, Macaulay Culkin is a godfather to Michael's children. He still you still see him with Paris all the time. And, you know, so he's still close to Michael's kids and, um, you know, and Brett Barnes and, you know, was close to Michael to the end of his life and girls as well, like Kelly pa Kelly Parker, who starred in his Moonwalker video, she stayed friends with him for many years. So it wasn't just boys. The media likes to focus on boys, but it was girls as well. Um, you know, Jennifer Love Hewitt told a wonderful story about like what she learned from Michael when she filmed a commercial from him. And she went to Neverland a few times. And um, so it was both boys and girls. But a lot of it was during that time frame in the early 90s. And that's when he was had his first opportunity to really build friendships, right? So he'd been work, 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 right? And now he finally had an opportunity for some time to, and he was still working like crazy, but, you know, to build some kind of friendships. And so, yeah, he gravitated people who were at that age at that time. Um, and you, when you go later into the 2000s, you see he's not hanging out with kids anymore. Um, and that's because he's matured also, right? So I think in the early 90s, he was at that level mentally that like Macaulay Culkin was. And even Macaulay said, you know, he understood me better than anyone at school because he understood what I was going through with Home Alone and all this stuff that no one else, none of my other friends really got it or understood what I was going through the way he did. Um, so they really connected. And I know like one of his studio engineers said, you know, his relationship with Lisa Marie Presley was like two seventh graders, you know, like it was just, that's just where he was mentally at that stage in his life. And, and that's not a knock on him. I mean, it's just, he didn't play when he was little, right? So he, now, you know, now he's older and he wants to play and he wants to experience life. And, you know, so he's going to gravitate towards the younger people who are kind of at that same stage emotionally as he is, if that makes sense. Um, but he grew out of that stage later in life. I mean, he always loved children that there's no doubt he loved children, but you know, he wasn't hanging out as much with kids, you know, later in life as he matured. Can I, can I, can I ask about his Rob childhood? What was a factor for his Rob childhood? I've always heard people bring up his dad kind of forced him and the brothers and sisters to kind of, I don't know, train really, really hard and really try and be the best that they can be. Yeah. So he um, performed publicly for the first time in the first grade. Um, he's saying, and one of his, uh, family saw him sing and how like good of a singer he was his dad um basically put him in a group with his brothers and they um basically like 
every weekend or after school, they rehearsed every day after school. On the weekends, they would go do talent shows. They would drive up to Chicago because they lived like a half hour away from Chicago or 30 miles away from Chicago. So they would go to Chicago all the time to these talent shows and they would do a lot of clubs, including like strip clubs. So he, you know, he's like, I'm a little kid. I'm at this strip club performing. Like, it's just, you know, so he was really turned off by a lot of that kind of adult world, you know, because he was pushed into it at such a young age. And that's what he was doing. He was like performing constantly. Um, they didn't become a household name till 1969. Um, so he was a little older by the time they became a household name, like 10 or 11, but he'd already been performing heavily for five years. And his dad was really, really strict with them and really, really hard with them. Um, he did say many times, you know, that his dad was abusive. Like, you know, if they didn't perform, they would get hit or whatever. Um, but he did also say later in life that he can kind of reflect on that and understand why his dad was like that, because his dad grew up, you know, a poor black man in the South. There weren't many opportunities and he didn't want his children to live what he had lived through and experience what he had experienced. He wanted them to make something of themselves. And he knew that was only going to be possible if they really, really worked hard. Um, that was the only way that they were going to kind of get out of that world of poverty that he knew. So he kind of understood later in life why his dad pushed them so hard. But when he was young, he didn't really understand it. And he wished that, you know, he had had more time to to just be a kid and not like working 24 seven. What was the biggest pressure in Michael Jackson's life? Would you say what is the early music career or was it later on in his life? I mean, toss out the allegations or the, the molestation charges. Let's focus on just career wise. What was the biggest impedance on to him? In terms of his career? Like Elvis um... Presley was worked to death. And a lot of people don't know that. Uh, Colonel Tom Parker was trying to pay off his gambling debts. He was like 30 million in debt. So he kept having Elvis run over and over again on Vegas. But I would look at Michael Jackson's career. I mean, you're a hit icon. I mean, your household name. People still talk about him and mention him today. So I'm just curious. I mean, I, I don't know if he dabbled in filmmaking. Um, he did or... later in life. Well, he called his videos short films. Um, a lot of them are quite long, like Thriller and Black or White. They're, like they're seven quite minutes long or something. Yeah, yeah. They're quite long videos. Um, he did want to direct films later in life. He never really had the opportunity, but it's something he really wanted to do is to direct films because um, he was very involved with the making of his music videos, which he called short films. It's hard to say um, what the pressure was without saying the allegations, because I think that is what really like you, you see a difference in him before and after because. You know, and I go into it in my book, kind of the impact that false allegations can have on a person and the psychological impact. And, you know, it did really um, destroy him in a way. You know what I mean? Because it is difficult to have all these people saying all these things about you and thinking all these things about you that aren't true. Like that really has an impact on the psyche, um, you know, and in some ways. You know, his I think the best album he ever created, his magnum opus, was the history album in 1995. And that was in response to the allegations. So artistically, it really, you know, that's why in some way why his music, you know, was so great and why he was able to create such great art. But it was very painful personally for him. Um, you know what I mean? And, and I think after he kind of got it off his chest and put out the history album, then things kind of quieted down for him because I think you know, once you kind of like really angry over something and then it dies down and I think you just kind of feel sad over it. You know what I mean? Like in any situation in life. So I think that history album was like, 
it came out of his anger and it was like such a genius and brilliant album because he just had so much anger in him. But then it, that anger, I think, you know, turned to sadness and it just, and he did still write great music after that, um, you know, but I think it was, there was a certain sadness there that it's hard to get over if you, cause you go through all these things to clear your name. You know what I mean? You have two grand juries clear you, you have a, you have um, a court, an actual jury clear you and the media still talks about it as though it's all true. So that has to wear on a person, immensely wear on a person. Now, how much do you put into what Michael Jackson's career, like lingering today as well, too, not just on the basis of music, but the commercialization that he has become? It seems like whenever we have a huge icon figure, JFK, anybody, it becomes commercialization They're on T-shirts or on lunchboxes. And eventually it gets very hard to distort who the actual person was. Um, or understand who they actually were, like their life, like how much you understand about Michael Jackson. Everyone kind of just knows bits and pieces. Either they know him from this or they know him from that. Yeah, it is hard. It is hard to know any kind of um, celebrity. I think what you have to do is listen to the people that knew him. And that's why I listened to like 100 interviews of like 100 different people that knew him and worked with him and spent time with him. Because if you really want to know someone, you got to listen to the people that were around them, that spent extensive time around them and see what their perceptions are, what their stories are. Um, and also just lis listening to his music. I mean, he put a lot of his heart and soul into his music, particularly like in the 90s after. So you can just read the lyrics to his music and listen to his music and just, you know, the emotion and tension in his voice or whatever. And you can kind of see what his story was, what he went through. Um, so that's how I would do it. I I don't think you're going to get the truth from the media on any topic, not just Michael Jackson, you know, or JFK or whoever, you know, really on any topic, you're going to get like a, you know, a very like um, limited view of someone from the media or very distorted view. Um, I would say limited at best and distorted at worst, you know, like is what you're going to get from the media. What about his death? Um, Michael Jackson's death and then um, how much do you think was because of that pain that he went through with all those allegations and things and dealing with all that yeah so I covered that extensively in the book that I have a long chapter on his death um, he was taking propofil to sleep or something like yeah, that. yeah right? so he he always had trouble sleeping part of it was he just was a very creative active mind and you know when you're a creative person thoughts are always coming into your head and you can't turn your mind off. And when you can't turn your mind off, you can't sleep. So that's part of it. Um, there's also the false allegations. There's actually been a lot of studies done that people who are falsely accused suffer from chronic sleep disorders because of those false allegations. So there is a lot of science to back that up. Um, so I def that definitely played a part. But I also think him wanting to redeem his name played a huge part in it. So he agreed to do these London concerts, right? Um, but when he performs, he can't sleep at night because he's so energized from the, you know, his adrenaline is so high from the performance that he needs a few days off before he can perform again. But the way that they had these rehearsals scheduled, it was like day after day after day. And he can't he can't perform unless he sleeps. So he tried all kinds of natural stuff first. Um, you know, he had this holistic nurse practitioner helping him and but it wasn't working. Um, and so eventually he, you know, he got this idea of using propofol or somebody put that idea in his head. I don't know. Um, so he started taking propofol from Dr. Murray, um, to sleep. And obviously we know what happened. It ended up killing him. Um, but he really much wanted to redeem his name with those London concerts. He wanted to, um, 
kind of put the past aside and kind of remind people what his music was about. You know, he said the point of this concert, these concerts is to remind the world to love each other, that love is important. Unity is important. Peace is important. You know, so he wanted to remind people what his music was all about, what it stood for, um, to give people hope and inspiration. Um, and I think he wanted that so much that um, and he just couldn't sleep. He couldn't he couldn't sleep after performing and nothing was working. And and there are signs that he was maybe having second thoughts about the propofol. Um, and I go into that in my book because he would the basically the holistic health practitioner who was helping him originally with the sleep. She told him, don't take this. It's really bad. There's bad side effects. This is a horrible idea. So in the last few days of his life, he reached out to her for help. So that implies to me he was having second thoughts because you don't usually reach out to someone who has castigated you unless you come to realize that, man, maybe that someone was right. Maybe I should have listened to them. So because um, usually when someone castigates, you, you don't go running back to them, right? Because you don't want to mm -hmm. get castigated again. So the fact that he was reaching out to her, I think, implies to me he was realizing that he'd made a mistake. He needs to find some other way to sleep. Um, but it was too late because a few days later, um, you know, he died. So it's just a really sad story. And I do go into a lot of detail around his death. Has anything come out after his death? Like, I don't know if he kept a diary or a journal, if there's papers or anything, or anyone tried to make money off of him after his death, like come out with some secret evidence or something like that. It always happens in scenarios like this with a celebrity. Um, no, not really. Um, you know, there was the court case. Murray got convicted of an, an involuntary manslaughter um the guy know, who was to, charging him yeah the guy who was giving him the propofol he got sentenced oh, to four oh. years and then he he served two years for involuntary involuntary manslaughter and then he got released on parole after two years um so was he giving him like more than he should have taken or something well just the fact that he was giving it at the home because you're not supposed to give it outside the doctor setting right well, doctors make house calls that's the point he, of it. yeah well he didn't have the proper resuscitation equipment and the other thing is he waited half an hour to call 911 so every doctor that testified at his trial said if he had called 911 immediately michael would have survived so nobody everybody was disgusted by the fact that he waited like half an hour to call 911 and i think that had a lot to do with why he was convicted because he clearly was trying to cover his own self or his own you know behind or whatever and not, um, you know, he, he should have just called 911. Yeah. So that I think that had a lot to do with his conviction. That and the fact that he didn't have the right equipment there. He wasn't monitoring him. He was like talking to females on the phone, um, girlfriends on the phone or whatever. And, you know, instead of watching Michael. And so the whole thing was just a disaster. Um, yeah. I mean, so he, he ended up going to prison. What would you say the lesson that you've learned from Michael Jackson's life is? I mean, besides not trusting the media, which I think you can you can look at anybody's life that's gone kind of like a scandalous a little bit and be like, yeah, I don't trust the media on that. But what would you say the moral lesson is from his story? I mean, obviously, celebrity is a thing a lot of people probably won't understand. I don't understand it, but it's hard when a lot of people adore you as much as they did for Michael Jackson, that that doesn't just weigh on you constantly and you feel pressure added on top of you, plus on top of how much you are working. Yeah, I think the uh, lesson to learn is to always stay authentic, no matter what, like, which he always stayed authentic in his music. He always stayed authentic into who he was as a person. Um, you know, he always said he loved children. He said that later in life, you know, all the way to the end, that didn't change. Um, 
you know, he was authentic in his music. He wrote about things that he cared about, things that mattered to him. You know, he wasn't he wasn't going to be just one of those artists who sang about whatever, you know, he wanted to write meaningful songs, songs that really impacted people, you know, at a very core level. Um, so he just stayed authentic. And I actually quoted a speech from JFK in my book where JFK said the greatest duty of an artist is to stay authentic and let the chips fall where they may. And that's what he did. And I think he suffered a lot for his authenticity. Do you know why he got like a skin transplant or whichever where he's changed his skin color? Yes. Yeah, so he um, had these horrible burns on his scalp. From when he got 1980. lit on fire on stage? Yeah. Yeah, so he had these third degree burns on his scalp that he suffered from greatly for the rest of his life. He had on and off painkiller addiction for the rest of his life from those burns. But anyway, burns are one of the leading causes of vitiligo. So as as is lupus, which he was diagnosed with in 1983. So um, it was around that time that he started losing the pigmentation in his skin and he would use makeup to cover that up when he was out in public. Now you can find photos of him online now where you can clearly see the blotches on his skin and stuff, but he tried to hide that. He tried to cover it up with makeup and you know, as the vitiligo spread and spread, you know, they went to lighter and lighter makeup to try to kind of cover that up. But I think it's the burns that really triggered the vitiligo because burns are a leading cause of vitiligo. And you can really start see the pigmentate him starting to lose pigmentation after those horrific, horrific burns. And I don't think people understand how much he suffered from those burns. And I do go into that in the book, just how they caused him ongoing pain throughout his life because he developed these horrible, horrible scat. Uh, scars on his scalp. He had to wear hair pieces to cover it up or hair extensions to cover it up. And um, so I think it's, you know, the media ran with, oh, he's trying to be white <laughs> rather than looking at it sympathetically, which is here. And if you look at the pictures of the burns on his scalp, it's horrific. Like it'll make you want to puke. You know, it, lo it looks like some crater or like the sun or something. It looks horrific. Um, so I can't even fathom how painful that was and like the impact it had. So you know, the media can be really cruel, you know, to someone who suffers a horrific accident and try to twist it and to turn it into something completely that's what, different. That's, that's why I was asking about the propofil stuff, because I wondered if you were just taking that, you get addicted to painkillers pretty easily if you're in constant pain. Um, it starts off real small, but then you can't get off of them because a lot of people live with pain constantly throughout their whole entire life. We think of a back injury, but some people have like where it hurts to even put their clothes on. Yeah. So he had a horrible back injury as well because a bridge collapsed when he was performing. So he had the scalp injury and the back injury, which bridge um, collapse. Wait, what? So he was performing on like a, a bridge above the stage and the bridge collapsed. Um, and you can, you can see it out on YouTube, but I think it was in Germany. I can't remember. It was in 1999. <laughs> and anyway, that caused massive pain to his back or massive injury to his back. So he did struggle with painkillers. You know, I, I do go into that in the book. Like I don't whitewash or anything like he, you know, you can see sometimes he's like not really all there because he's probably high on, or not, or not high, high isn't the right word, but he's, you know, that he's maybe not all there because he's on some heavy medication or whatever. Um, so yeah, he did have a lot of pain, physical pain. Um, and, you know, his, one of his nurses said, you know, after the burns, he was just so petrified of pain of physical pain. Like it was just petrifying to him because, you know, and he, even for minor procedures, he would want a painkiller because he was so scared of the pain on his scalp. Yeah. I don't think propofol is not a painkiller. Um, there are some people that say propofol is addictive. So it's possible that, um, everything's you know, he was, addictive. Yeah. So, um, 
but I think a lot of it was just psychological. Like he felt he couldn't sleep. He was desperate to sleep and he felt like this was the only way. And the other thing about propofol, which I go into in the book is like, it makes you feel really rested after you've taken it, but you haven't gotten genuine sleep. So it hasn't fulfilled any of the biological needs for, of sleep, even though it makes you feel rested. So it's like eating some fake food. It might, might make you feel full. You're not hungry, but you haven't really gotten any nutrition. So that's kind of how doctors explain what pro, what the propofol was doing to his body is it wasn't, he wasn't getting the biological needs of sleep, even though he was feeling rested. Can I ask about bubbles and his, did he have a zoo? Am, am I yes. Just, he had okay. a zoo at Neverland. Yeah. God, I think he had I'm several. telling you, everybody who gets rich just buys a zoo and I love it. <laughs> yeah. He had a zoo at Neverland. It had chimps there. I think a giraffe, elephant. I think maybe tiger. I don't even know. All the have a walrus. That that's the real question. Um, yeah, he had, a, and he had a big petting zoo there because the children would like, you know, go to the petting zoo and he had like a reptile house there, I think as well, which I heard was really nasty. Um, <laughs> there were like bugs and everything. I don't know, but uh, yeah. So bubbles. Um, yeah. He said he loved animals because they don't gossip. They don't, you know, animals are like children. They love everybody. They don't care if you're ugly. They don't care, you know, what you did. They just love you and they love to play. And so I think he found it relaxing to, you know, you know, like all people do with their pets, their dogs or their cats or whatever, you know, your dog loves you no matter what, you know, kind of thing. And so I think that's why he loved, you know, hanging out with bubbles and whatnot. But yeah. It's also a thing with kids too. They don't have a judgment factor. A lot of them are a little too young or just they just don't perceive the concept of judgment. And it seems like that's all I don't know what happens when you become an adult, but that's all adults typically do. Yeah, no. And I think that's part of the reason he loved children is because they had no judgment and kind of going back to that heal the world video. That's why he's showing children like playing you know, like in Israel and Palestine or whatever, you're seeing children playing and they don't know any, you know, they're like kids playing with each other. It's the adults that are like creating the tension and not the kids, you know? And so I think that's one of the reason that he loved children is that we're, you know, because children love everybody, just like animals love everybody. So what's one I of the that's... dark things you learned about? Like, cause obviously from your knowledge that you had just being a fan compared to when you were actually writing the book, I mean, how much did it change? Did you come across anything like one bad thing that you maybe it doesn't have to be anything scandalous, just something that he did that you just maybe just didn't like or just didn't know or didn't. I don't Um, I don't know if bad is the right word. I, I think he was naive at times. He let people take advantage of him, um, which was, I think, one of his big weaknesses. I think, um, you know, obviously he made a huge mistake with the propofol. He should have looked more into it. Like he should have taken more responsibility for that and just, you know, really understood the ramifications of taking it. You know, um, I, under I understand his desperation and all the pressures he was under and, and all that, but he should have, um, you know, found some other solution, I think. And that, maybe there was no other solution. I mean, obviously, in his mind, there was no other solution because nothing was working. He couldn't sleep. So it's easy for me to judge. But, you know, I you know, I think he would have, and he did talk about how he likes, you know, he thinks God's, he believes in God's medicine over Western chemicals. And so he definitely believed in using things like herbs and natural remedies and stuff, but I wish he would have maybe given more to that or, because it takes a lot of patience to naturally cure, right? Overtaking drugs, which are like an immediate cure. So I wish he had given more time to that versus going to maybe the painkillers and the propofol, 
um, because I did think those both of those things really negatively impacted him. Um, but he's not unique in that. You know, a lot of people turn to drugs as their first resort. And it wasn't his first resort, but I wish he would have given more time and more energy into maybe finding other ways to deal with those with those things. Um, and like I said, he was naive, I think. Like he was too trusting of people. Um, but I guess in his defense, I don't know how he could know who to trust because so many people had deceived him. And it's it just, he was just naive, I think. He was always kind of naive. And naive on a person-to-person level. Like, I think if you listen to his music, he wasn't naive on the big picture of what's happening in the world. And But he was not, you know, and how corrupt war is and all that. He wasn't naive about those things. But on a person-to-person level, I think he just assumed, you know, that the person he was dealing with wasn't going to screw him over and was a good person. And it was hard for him, I think, to judge who who was taking advantage of him and who was genuine. What about a positive that you learned? I guess, um, did you learn more about a deeper cultural knowledge that he had when it came to being more aware of different cultures and things of that sort that you can't really, I mean, you can definitely get from his music, but I think if you watch, like I've seen interviews where he's just buying a bunch of old style, like he, I wouldn't say Egyptian art, but just something that is not of the origin of the United States, I would say. And he's kind of like just interested in how it looks. He's talking about the colors of it. He's actually, there's a thing I watched an interview where he started talking about the history of one of the objects. And I was like, how does he know that? Like the guy who's selling the thing doesn't even know it, but Michael Jackson's over here just rattling off a historical fact. Yeah, he was a history buff, which I think people don't know. He was extremely, extremely knowledgeable. He knew about like everything you can imagine because all he did is read. That's what he did. He didn't go anywhere. He just read books. He didn't watch TV. He he literally, like most of what he did is read books. If he wasn't working, he was reading a book. And the history books were his probably his favorite type of book. So he was really, really knowledgeable in history. Um, but I he said one of the, what interests him most about life is learning new things. So he was like extremely, extremely curious person. Like curious about everything you can imagine, like any and everything he wanted to know about it. Like you could even say he was nosy. You know what I mean? Like curious, nosy, whatever. <laughs> he just wanted to know everything about everything. You know, like one of his friends was saying in an interview, they were staying at someone's house and Michael was like opening all the cabinets and like, you know, he just wanted to know everything about everything. That's just how he was. Um, but what I learned most from him, I think it's just empathy and authenticity, just having empathy for other people, having compassion for other people. And staying authentic to who you are, no matter how much is thrown your way or how much you're trashed or whatever, just, you know, don't change who you are. Now, why? So was was it just the biography that he was writing that was the connection with JFK or did did he ever meet JFK? Uh, He met Jackie because Jackie edited his autobiography and she wrote the intro to his autobiography. He never met JFK himself. No. Um, So he... That's right. Yeah. Because JFK was in 63. Yeah. So he's like five years old. Michael was five. Yeah. So um, he referenced referenced JFK in his Man in the Mirror video and in his Man in the Mirror performance in Moonwalker. He said the song was about JFK's philosophy, you know, and and they don't care about us. He shows Lee Harvey Oswald getting shot shot by Jack Ruby, you know, in in his They Don't Care About Us video. Um, and then, of course, he wrote the song about the JFK assassination character and physical. So he he had a painting of JFK at his house. I think his personal portrait artist probably made that painting. Did he just watch interviews to get a, to be a fan of JFK or speeches? I don't know. I know he loved JFK, but I don't know where his interest in JFK came from. Did he but stay yeah, in he contact did. with Jackie is the question. 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I know he really admired Jackie. He wouldn't do an autobiography unless she edited it. That's crazy that she he wanted her advice on editing it. Yeah, he said he wouldn't even write one unless she was he she he said he, she's the only person he trusts to edit it. So I think he just trusted that she wasn't going to be trashy or sleazy about it. And, you know, she was going to be authentic about it or whatnot. Um, so I know he really admired her. Um, so I don't know if part of his interest in JFK came from Jackie, maybe. I'm not sure. I don't really know where that interest came from. But what would you say you'd want the public to kind of like, what would you I mean, for your book, for instance, like what would you really want to strike a message home with people? What do you want them to remember about Michael Jackson? Obviously, his career is excellent, but when you talk about just the deeper level layer that is between the musician and who he actually was. Um, just how brave he was, how much courage he had to sing the songs he did, to write the songs he did. Um, a lot of them were not typical pop songs. You know, a lot of them, I think, took a lot of courage to write and a lot of courage to sing. Um so I think that's how people should remember him as someone who is really strong, really authentic, really courageous, and who dealt with a mountain, mountain of pressure and a mountain of just BS and a mountain of like character assassination and slander. And which is, I think, why <clears throat> why he was able to write a song about the character assassination of JFK, because he understood it. Like if anybody understood character assassination, it was MJ. So he was able to write about J, you know, the character assassination of JFK because he was living through the same experiences. Um, but yeah, I think just his bravery. What would you point people towards if they were going to look deeper into the allegations and the stuff that was going on that seems to be part of like cultural memory? Like whenever Michael Jackson's name comes up, obviously we can tear apart that myth of child molestation pretty easily if people just actually go and find the resources like you did and be able to show people actually this happened, this happened, and this happened. It's an extortion event. Yeah, so they can get it from my book and I have all the sources listed. I list all the court transcripts and things like that. So then they can access those court transcripts if they want. You know, MJ fans have made a lot of YouTube videos over the years that they can probably find online um, that kind of also go in. There's a great documentary, Square One, um, on Amazon. Oh, I thought you were going to say Neverland or Forgetting Neverland. I was like, we got to talk about that. That was a, I couldn't watch it. I, I made it through, I think, maybe 20 minutes. And then I just kind of started getting sick to my stomach a little bit because they always do the voiceover. That's like, and they didn't know this was coming. I was like, wait, all right, this sounds too Hollywood for me. Yeah, I wrote a chapter in my book about that documentary, but the documentary people should watch is Square One. It uh, covers the 1993 allegations. Um, so it's a really good documentary. It's on Amazon. I think it's maybe an hour and a half long. Um, so that gives a really good intro to those allegations. Um, yeah, the Leaving Neverland documentary was just such crap, right? And they released it on the 10-year anniversary of his death, which I don't think I is an accident. That's a spit on them. Yeah, usually on the 10-year anniversary of someone's death, you know, you celebrate their life. It's a remembrance of their life. With Michael Jackson, it was like the biggest attempt to cancel him since his 2005 trial. And you had all these articles saying, oh, we should stop listening to his music. We should censor his music. And you know, it was just horrible. But yeah, I go into the details in that documentary. Um, one of the most blatant, so there are a lot of, lot of issues with that documentary, but one of the most blatant, which I think um, is easy for people to understand, is James Safecheck. So in that documentary, he details how in the late 1980s, he was abused daily during the honeymoon phase of his relationship with Michael in the train station at Neverland. But that train station was not built till 1994. 
And he said under penalty of perjury that he stopped being abused in 1992 because he was too old for Michael. That's the whole premise of that documentary is MJ, you know, dumps boys when they reach puberty. So here he is saying in the late 1980s, I was abused daily in the train station. In 1992, all abuse stopped, but the train station didn't exist till 1994. So they always say like, you don't, only the two people in the room will ever know the truth. Well, we know the truth because the room didn't exist. So those that's the kind of crap, like, and I go through that documentary in detail in my book. It, it's just, you it, just rip it to shreds. If you know, like the details that those allegations are really easy to rip to shreds. But that's one of the easiest ones to explain to people because everybody understands the train station thing. You know, that's really easy to explain. What's uh, one that you can't explain? What do you mean can't explain? Like you can't explain. You just mentioned that one was easily explained. Like you can easily explain it away. What's one that you can't explain? One allegation or one thing out there that just doesn't have – we don't have evidence or there's not something there? Um, no, everything can be explained, I think. It just takes more or less time to explain. You know, like for example um, – you know, like another thing Safe Chuck said in his documentary, <clears throat> in this Leaving Neverland documentary, is that Michael begged him to testify in 2005. Well, if anybody who studied that 2005 trial, you know, there was no character defense. Michael didn't call any character witnesses. So the only reason Wade was called as a witness was because somebody had sold stories to the tabloids saying they saw Wade molested. So Wade was called to dispute that testimony or that tabloid story. There was no there was no testimony for safe check to, to, um, to dispute. There was absolutely no reason to call him for the trial. It made no sense whatsoever. If anybody who studied that trial, right. So that's harder to explain to people because you have to understand the 2005 trial. Whereas the train station thing is really easy to explain to people. Cause obviously the train station was there or wasn't there. So that's what I meant by that's an easy one to explain to people where some of the other ones, you kind of have to understand the other cases or you have to understand the bigger picture so it just takes longer to explain. There was an interview I heard with the, on Coast to Coast about Michael Jackson's bodyguard, um, but he was talking about a lot of the allegations. Now, I've heard varying perspectives from the bodyguards, some that say that there was nothing that went on at the Neverland Ranch. It was nothing allegation-wise at all, and then one that has just completely like made profit off of Yes, this all went down there. This happened and this one happened. And you, when you say like, that's something that's not really easily explained because if you try and tell people it's for the money, they go, well, how do you prove that though? Besides the guy making a lot of money off of this thing, it just becomes- I, I'll show you. Okay. So the bodyguards that defend him were the bodyguards that re that were worked with him for years. That one bodyguard, I know who you're talking about. I think it's Matt Fitz. He worked for him for one or two days in London. That's it. He was like a temporary guy. He wasn't even Michael's bodyguard. He literally worked for him for like a day. And then he sold a bunch of stories to the tabloids versus the bodyguards who actually were employed by Michael and who worked for him on a regular basis all say the allegations are nonsense. So that's how you know the difference. It's not just that he sold stories for the tabloids, is that he literally spent one day working as a bodyguard for Michael. The guy doesn't know anything, literally knows nothing, right? So that's how you can kind of tell the difference. Oh, I never even thought about that. Yeah, because he had so many stories. I was listening to him. I mean, it's it, entertaining to listen to if you like that type of stuff. But yeah, it, that's a that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, do you feel like you understand him a lot better now 
that you've done the book and everything. I mean, you've gone through very, you have various chapters in there. I'm going to make sure I put the book link in the description. I'm going to give you a second to be able to promote it as well too. But obviously you did a lot of research to be able to talk about Michael. You're a fan as well too. So, I mean, it had to be fun, but do you feel like you understand him better at a deeper level than probably a lot of the people do? I think so. I think so. I think, you know, because once you understand his story, you kind of understand what he went through and you can then understand his actions better when you understand the pressures he was dealing with, the obstacles he was dealing with, you know, the hurdles and everything. So you definitely writing about anybody, you get a much better understanding about them for sure. Makes them more human. Yes. And that's what I tried to do in my book. I tried to humanize him and I tried to tell the story from his perspective because so often in the media, you get like the tabloid perspective. So I wanted to tell his story, you know what I mean, To, And that's why I start like, in, well, I start from his childhood in the 80s. And so by the time you get to the allegations, you already kind of have an idea of who he is. And then you can kind of see how he lives through that period of his life. Well, Monica, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk about uh, your new book. Uh, where can people find your new book? And where can people find some other links that you have out there? Uh, yeah, so my book is on Amazon, and it'll be on other on other outlets as well, like Thrift Books and Barnes and Noble, all the typical outlets. And it's on a paperback, ebook. There's a hardback. The hardback will take a little longer to be on Amazon, but it can be got on other outlets. And then an audio will be available shortly as well, self recorded audio. I will be getting that audio. I can tell you that much. That's how I. That's how I you know, process all my books, but um, I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again about a different topic than JFK. Um, happy we can bra branch out of that little niche group. Uh, but uh, thank you again for chatting with me and thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.